Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be there in a little bit. But today we are beginning a new series called The Ways of Jesus. And we'll be talking about, uh, over the course of the next couple months, some practices that Jesus modeled throughout his life that bring transformation to our lives. Some of these practices are small and they're overlooked. Uh, the practice that we're going to be talking about today is the practice of silence and solitude. And we live in a crazy, hectic, busy world. And just getting alone and, and being quiet with God is sometimes a really challenging thing to do. Last week we talked about Mary and Martha and how Martha did things for Jesus. But Mary's heart was to be with Jesus, to sit at his feet and listen to him teach. And I want to emphasize that over the course of the next couple months... As we talk about these practices, we're not talking about doing things for God. We're not talking about earning stars, right, or, 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 or just getting extra credit with heaven. I don't know if heaven does that or not. But we're talking about being with God, about enjoying his presence, abiding in his presence. And so as we get started on this series, I want to give you some uh, recommended readings uh, these are going to be some, so I'm using all of these resources for this series. And so if you would like to go deeper, the first resource that I want to encourage you to check out, it's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I think they're on the bottom of your handouts, by the way. If you look on the bottom of your handouts, there's some recommended readings there. The first one is called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It's by John Mark Comer. And it's how to, uh, how to, be qu- how to slow down in a chaotic world uh, and, and prioritize time with God. It's also, it also talks a lot about Sabbath rest. It's a lot about just spiritual formation. And so uh, it, it was one of, a, it, it's one of the books in my life recently that has brought a lot of influence, a lot of transformation in my life. Uh, I've read it a couple times now because it's so good. So that's the first one I would recommend. The second one is called The Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard. And this book, again, is all about uh, transforming the heart. It's all about developing a lifestyle, developing spiritual practices that just draw you close to God. And and it just really focuses on on heart work. So this is an incredible book to pick up as well. Uh, Another one is called uh, Secrets of the Secret Place. And this one is kind of a devotional book. And so there's 52 chapters and they're like Two to three pages each chapter, but it's a devotional thing that you can do throughout the year called Secrets of the Secret Place by Bob Sorge. Um, And then the last one, I don't think it's on your, it might not be on your notes, but it's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And this author talks about how it's impossible to become spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And so... It deals a lot because often we separate our emotions from our spirit and our physical and stuff. But Jesus made us, uh, we are all triune beings. Just like uh, we worship a God who is three in one. We have, we have body, soul, and spirit. And, and they all function together. And so it's impossible to have a spiritually mature lifestyle while remaining emotionally immature. So check out this book. And then the last thing is kind of a um, something that maybe if you have Netflix, I would highly encourage you to check out the documentary, The Social Dilemma. Has anybody seen this documentary before on Netflix? If you have a Netflix account and you haven't seen this documentary, it's going to tie along very well with what we're going to be talking about today. So you can check out The Social Dilemma on Netflix if you, if you have Netflix at home. How many of you know that the year 2007 completely changed the world? Completely altered the world as we know it. 
uh, a lot of economists and, and cultural uh, professionals, they, they say that it's going to be compared in the future to the Protestant Reformation of 1440, where uh, in 1440, Martin Luther uh, translated the Bible from Latin to German, and, and the people had access to the Bible from all over the place, and then it was short, shortly followed by the invention of the printing press, and when the printing press was created, it completely changed history. Suddenly, information was distributed to the people throughout the known world, and it wasn't held to just the elite uh, who who only knew uh, who knew how to read Latin, but it was distributed throughout the world. And uh, and 2007 completely changed history forever. It will always go down as an, as a life altering year. How many of you know what happened in the year? 2007. Anybody want to take a guess? Steve Jobs released the first iPhone in 2007. (laughs) You laugh. I'm not kidding. The first iPhone was released in 2007, and in the same year, Facebook became a global phenomenon and was given, everybody was given, anybody with an email was given access to Facebook, and it was no longer just a college campus thing. What else happened in 2007? Twitter became a global platform that anybody could sign up and make an account. There was lots of technological advances that happened around the year 2007, including uh, the release of the App Store. How convenient is that? Suddenly we can just go to a, a cloud store somewhere out in the ether and we can download tools that will help make our lives easier with our finances and with even uh, uh, checking the weather and uh, all, all these different apps that you could download from the app store. It was also around the same time uh, the cloud came out. Intel uh, released a new chip for computers that, and now we have silicon chips. But the start of the digital age all started in the year 2007, all around that time. 2007 will always be remembered as the official start of the digital age. Now, I am just old enough I'm barely old enough to remember something that we called in the 90s, or something in the 90s that we called boredom. Does anybody remember what that was like? In the 90s, uh, we had something called boredom. Much, many of you are much older than I am, so I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here. No offense, okay? You are all wise. I look to you as, as my wise counsel. And, and, uh, I, but I remember sitting on a train or, or being on a plane, or standing in line at a grocery store with absolutely nothing to do. And now we go to the grocery store and what do we do? We're standing in line and we're checking our Facebook, we're checking our Instagram, we're checking our emails, we're doing something on our phones. Many of us are, are, are just keeping ourselves busy. And my kids, my kids have grown up in a world, my kids have never known a world where you couldn't look up any song or any TV show in an instant. Just go to YouTube, go to Apple Music, you look up anything you want immediately. Because now we have infinity in our pockets, don't we? Infinity lives in our back pockets, and in seconds, we can Google the answer to any question. We can get directions to any destination. We can FaceTime with people from across the world. We can purchase any item with a two-day shipping guarantee, all from the convenience of a small brick in our pockets. That's incredible. Who would have imagined 15 years ago that this would be available to us? And, and who knows where we're going to be in 10 more years? Be riding hoverboards around. It'll be a true back to the future type of, of, of thing. 
You know, technology is great. It's convenient. But what was meant originally to become a tool, if you watch this documentary, The Social Dilemma, you have people who are uh, working for Facebook and working for all these social media companies, these technology companies, and they'll all tell you that what was meant to be a tool has now become an epidemic. It's become an, an addiction. It's become a necessity. Some would argue that it's become a weapon for others to use against nations. This thing that didn't exist 15 years ago, we can't imagine living without it today. If you took away the iPhone from a younger generation, they wouldn't know how to get to Anachi. <laughs> they won't know how to get to Costco. Remember when you had to print out the long directions? How many of you remember going to the glove box and pulling out a big map and having to figure out you know, a road trip and like that? I remember trying to tell somebody to get to like my house and I, I doubt, I'd give them directions and here's the printed direct, just like five pages of directions. Turn right here, turn left here. We can't imagine living without it today. Technology is great. It's convenient. It's brought a lot of great things to our lives. But nowadays, professionals will tell you that anxiety is an all-time high. Joy and fulfillment is at an all-time low. There are lots of cons to this digital age that not a lot of people talk about. There's this, uh, 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 if you watch The Social Dilemma, they'll tell you this, that a 5,000-person study found that higher social media use correlated with self-reported declines in mental and physical health and life satisfaction. The more you use social media, the less and less healthy you are and the less and less satisfied with life you are. It's interesting. The number of countries with political disinformation campaigns on social media doubled in the past two years. 64% of people who joined extremist groups on Facebook did so because the algorithm steered them from there. That that Facebook actually has algorithms that, that, that push towards you what you want to see. So if you already think one way, it's going to push information that you agree with so that it more confirms your stance. Instead of giving you both sides of the spectrum and allowing you to make a good decision, it just gives you information that you already know and things that you're going to say, that's right, that's right, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it, I'm right, I'm right. Who's with me? (laughs) One of the most alarming statistics is that our attention spans are dropping with each passing year. Have you noticed, if you watch kids' shows nowadays, they're just so fat. Paw Patrol, Paw Patrol, on the double. I remember it was just like, Winnie the Pooh, Winnie the Pooh. And you're watching this one, like, 30-second shot of Winnie the Pooh eating honey. And it was entertaining. And now everything's so fast. Our attention spans are dropping with each passing year. In the last couple decades, our attention spans have gone from 12 seconds to 8 seconds. Now, 12 seconds is... Is pretty alarming. I, you know, I, when I first read this, I was like, wow, 12 seconds was actually our high point at some, at some time. <laughs> but did you know that goldfish have an attention span of nine seconds? <laughs> we have a shorter attention span nowadays than goldfish, church. <laughs> attention spans are dropping with each passing year. Economists say that we live in an attention economy. Companies everywhere are paying people millions of dollars to figure out ways to get your attention so you can buy their products. They're trying to make us all consumers. If you've seen the social dilemma, you know that Facebook and other companies, they know when you're not on your phone, 
They know what times of day that you don't look at your phone, so they intentionally send you notifications at those times of day to get you to look at your phone and pick it back up. They want to keep your face glued to the screen and your attention focused on what is in your hand so that you become more of a consumer. We live in an attention economy. We are an addicted and distracted society that is robbed of the joy of being present with friends and family and with God. Come on, how many of you know what it's like to go have dinner with somebody and you look across the table and everybody's looking at their phones? <laughs> or you're with family and, and, and I, I do this all the time. We're, we're in the basement and we're having family time and I'll be on the couch and, and mom and I are, are on our phones and the kids are like doing something. You know, we're not engaged. We're not present. It's robbing us of the joy of being present with people and with family, with God. And the more we succumb to the desires of immediate gratification and the desire to be constantly entertained, the more we lose our soul. The more we lose our soul, if, 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 if our mental and physical health and our life satisfaction is declining, we're losing our soul in this age. Matthew sixteen twenty six. Jesus says this. He said, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? We have gained the whole world. We have access to the whole world. We can do things nowadays that we couldn't have done 15 years ago. But what good is it if we gain the whole world and lose our soul? Why is it so difficult nowadays to simply exist in in the world without feeling the need to be entertained or to busy ourselves? I think one of the reasons is that boredom or stillness or silence, it puts us face to face with the reality of what is happening inside of us. When we're quiet, we begin to reflect. And when we, when we begin to reflect, we begin to look inward. And when we begin to look inward, we go, I don't like what I see, so I'm going to keep myself distracted. Don't want to think about that. Don't want to deal with that. Don't want to have that conversation with God. Don't want to have that conversation with my wife. Don't want to have that conversation with my friends. I'm going to keep myself distracted. One of my favorite bands is uh, the band 21 Pilots. Anybody listen to 21 Pilots? Right. There we go. We got some bands. 21 Pilots. And, and they have a song called Car Radio, that perfectly describes this feeling. And, and the, the theme of the song is the, he, he has his radio stolen from his car, and now he's forced to drive in silence. And this is what he says. These are some of the lyrics to the song. He says, somebody stole my car radio, and now I just sit in silence. Sometimes quiet is violent. I find it hard to hide it. My pride is no longer inside. It's on my sleeve. My skin will scream, reminding me of who I killed inside my dream. I hate this car that I'm driving. There's no hiding it from me. I'm forced to deal with what I feel. There is no distraction to mask what is real. I could pull the steering wheel. Just vividly describes that feeling that some of us get when we are in boredom or in stillness or in silence and that need to quickly run to a distraction or to entertain ourselves or to, to just put some noise on, put some music on, keep something going so that we're not forced to deal with what we feel. But in order to grow, we have to face reality. I don't want to be forced to deal with what I feel, so I'll keep myself busy and entertained and distracted. See, hurry and accomplishment and addiction and chaos are the ways of the world. They are the patterns of the world. And Romans 12, 2 says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind 
then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, if those things are the practices of the world, then what are the ways of Jesus? What are the patterns in the practices of Jesus? Is there a practice from the life of Jesus that can transform us to thrive in the chaos of modern society? Yes, there is. Silence and solitude is the answer. It was one of the ways of Jesus. Dedicating yourself to silence and solitude is a practice of Jesus, is a way of Jesus. And so let's look at the scripture, and we're going to look at the life of Jesus and where in scripture he modeled this practice. Hopefully you're with me in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, but the first story, this first story I'm going to share with you, takes place immediately after Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. And so John, Jesus comes to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist sees Jesus coming. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who's going to take, this, take away the sin of the world. And Jesus says, John, I need you to baptize me. And John says, uh, What are you talking about? You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, No, John, you really have to baptize me for the f- fulfillment of these prophecies. And John goes, Okay, fine, I'll baptize you. And John baptizes Jesus. And when Jesus comes out of the water, the heavens part and the spirit of God descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. The Holy Spirit comes and rests upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And and everyone around could hear an audible voice say, this is my son whom I am well pleased. What does Jesus do after this radical encounter with God? This marks the beginning of Jesus's three year ministry. This, this baptism of Jesus, from here on out, Jesus goes out from being baptized and for three years does the work of God. But what does Jesus do immediately after being, uh, after being anointed, after being baptized, after being commissioned to go into the world and, and preach the, the coming of the kingdom of God? What does Jesus do immediately after this? Matthew chapter 4 says this, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the what? The wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, after being baptized, Jesus doesn't go to a mountaintop to preach to thousands of people. He doesn't go... Write a world-shattering book that is shared with the world. He doesn't start a vlog or a podcast. He doesn't go plant a church. What does Jesus do? He goes straight into the wilderness. The word wilderness is the Greek word eremos. And this word eremos, it means wilderness and desert. But it also means a desolate place. It means a quiet place or a lonely place. After Jesus is baptized, he heads to a place where he can find silence and solitude, where he can be alone with God for 40 days and 40 nights. Did you catch in the scripture who led Jesus into the wilderness? Who was it? The spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I always thought this was so bizarre. I never understood why would the devil... Lead Jesus into the desert to be tempted by the devil. That's such a bizarre thing. And, and, and you know, when I read this, I think, you know, it's just like the devil to come to us when we are at our weakest moments, right? When we're hungry, when we're alone, when we've been isolated. Then at the end of the 40-day fast, when Jesus is weak, 
he comes and he tempts Jesus. Oh, it's just like the devil. I used to think that when I read this, but I, I started reading it differently. The truth is that Jesus had just spent 40 days communing with his heavenly father and Jesus wasn't in his weakest moment at the end of these 40 days. He was actually in his strongest moment. The Eremos, the wilderness, the lonely place, the quiet place is not a place of weakness. It's a place of strength. This is why the spirit led Jesus into the quiet place so that he can prepare to withstand the devil's temptations. See, after 40 days of silence and solitude, Jesus was at the height of his spiritual powers. Jesus knew a secret that we don't know. That when you spend time in silence and solitude and dedicate time with God, you are in the place of strength. Psalms, David talks in the Psalms over and over again about being sheltered in his wings, right? He talks about God's presence as a shelter or a shield and a place of strength. And when you read the Psalms, you understand that God's presence, that lonely place, that quiet place is a place of strength. Now, let me clarify for a moment here that loneliness is different than solitude. Loneliness is the feeling that that nobody's there, that nobody's watching, that nobody cares about you. Solitude is a place where you intentionally go to be alone, knowing that God is there with you. He's in the secret place. Loneliness and solitude are not the same thing. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. If you go over to the next book, there's another story of Jesus practicing silence and solitude. Mark chapter 1. You know, uh, many uh, biblical scholars would agree that Mark chapter 1 takes place, All most of the events in Mark chapter 1 all take place within a 24-hour period. So we see in Mark chapter 1, um, verse 12, that Jesus is, he, he comes back from the, he's in the wilderness, but then he comes back, and when he comes back, he starts to do a whole bunch of stuff. He begins to preach the gospel, and in the same day, he makes a few disciples, in the same day, he casts out some demons. He heals a multitude of people, including Peter's mother-in-law. And, uh, and, and then, so that he's, he's had a busy day. Jesus has had a hectic, crazy, busy day. He, this, is, this is a day in the life of Jesus, right? He's, he's doing the work of heaven. But what does he do immediately after this busy day? He's probably tired. You and I would probably want to sleep in after a full day like that. Verse 35 says this, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to the Eremos. That's the same word, a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and they found him, and they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else to nearby villages so I can preach there also. This is why I have come. So we traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. See, Jesus spent 40 days in silence and solitude. He's in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Then he comes back for one day. It's a full day of ministry. And then he returns to the Eremos the next morning. Jesus understood that time in the quiet place with God is more important than sleep. Sleep is good. God gave, gave us rest. We need to have healthy sleep. But Jesus understood that time in the presence of God is even more important than sleep. Silence and solitude was woven 
into Jesus' lifestyle. It wasn't just a one-time thing. It was part of his daily life. It was something that he had to keep going with. Turn with me a couple chapters later to Mark chapter 6. Mark 6 verse 30. It says this. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. How many of you have ever felt so busy, so overwhelmed with life that you don't even have a chance to take a lunch break? You don't have an opportunity to stop and eat. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Quiet place, that's the same word, eremos. So they went away by themselves in a boat to the Eremos, a solitary place. Jesus and his disciples were so busy, they did not even have a chance to eat. And Jesus sees how tired his disciples are. And what does he tell them to do? He says, hey, listen, you need to go take a break and watch Netflix. No, <laughs> Jesus didn't say that. He said, hey, you know what you really need? You need to go and grab a, co- a cup of coffee with a really good friend. You need to go to the coffee shop and spend some time with a good friend. That'll fill you up. No, Jesus doesn't say that. He says, no, I want you to listen to this great leadership podcast. That way you'll be able to withstand more. No, Jesus doesn't say that. What does Jesus tell the disciples? Hey, he says, come with me to a quiet place where you can rest. A place free of distraction. A place free of noise and of hurry. Come with me to a quiet place. And then it goes on in verse 33. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there before them. And when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Isn't this just like the world that we live in? Come on, you parents can can relate with me. The minute that we find some quiet time, something happens, right? Something, someone... Someone has an issue. There's something going on. Something tries to steal our quiet time away, our silence and our solitude away. Something else appears on the calendar. We get busy. What happens right after this is that Jesus then proceeds, because he has compassion on them like sheep without a shepherd, he proceeds to miraculously multiply loaves and fishes to feed over 5,000 people. And after everyone is done eating, this is what happens next. In verse 45 of Mark 6. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him while he dismissed the crowd. And after leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. You guys, I've had a long day. I'm tired. I need some quiet. Just get in the boat and go. Everybody, we're done here. You guys can all go home. I love you. Have a nice night. I need to go up to the mountain to pray. And Jesus, you know what? It's okay. It's okay to do that. If Jesus, you know, we, we, our kids, they watch Daniel Tiger. And there's, this last week as I was preparing for this message, there was an episode about being alone and how it's okay to be alone. And the lyrics go like this. It's all right to take a break, to be alone, to step away, find a quiet place to settle down. And have some space. And I just started laughing because I could just see the Holy Spirit going over Jesus. It's all right to take a break, <laughs> to settle down, and have some space. 
you know what? If Jesus needed to be alone, if Jesus had to send people away, if Jesus had to make quiet time happen, how much more do we need to make quiet time happen? To do whatever we need to do to get it into our schedule. Go to bed earlier so you can wake up earlier before the kids get, get up. Uh, 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 say no to more things so that you can say yes to spending time in the presence of God. We have got to make time for the presence of God. Sometimes you just have to make it happen. You've got to send people away. You've got to say no to things if you want to make silence and solitude a practice in your life. The last story I'm going to share with you is in Luke chapter 5. <clears throat> One, turn with me to the next book, to Luke chapter 5, verses 15 through 16. It says this, Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that the crowds of people came to hear him, and he healed their sickness. Excuse me, they came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Same word. He often withdrew to the Eremos, to lonely places and prayed. He frequently did this. He often did this. If you, in the book of Luke alone, I think there's about nine accounts of Jesus withdrawing to the Eremos. And you can see as you read the Gospels that the more famous and in demand Jesus became, the more he withdrew to quiet places. Now, I don't know about you, but the more that I add to my calendar and the busier I become, the first thing to go is my quiet time with God, is my devotions, is, is time spent in the presence of God. That's the first thing to go. But Jesus modeled something different. He said the solution to busyness, the solution to anxiety and to hurry and to worry, the solution is to sit still and be quiet and listen to God. There's something about silence and solitude that transforms this church. There's something about it that Jesus couldn't live without. He had to do it. He had to be in the presence of God. And if Jesus had to do it, how much more do we have to do it? Silence and solitude is a practice that will transform your life. Well, what is silence and solitude? Let's define it real quick before we go any further. Silence and solitude is intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and with God. Intentional time to be quiet and be alone with ourselves and God. And so for the rest of our time, I want to share four things that happen when you practice silence and solitude. The first thing that happens when you begin to make this a practice is that in silence and solitude, we surrender our will to God's will. You surrender your will to God's will. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. See, I've realized that much of my prayers and petitions come from a place of fear and loss of control. I, I have so many things that I want God to do for me that the joy of simply being with God can often be lost. And silence and solitude isn't it about isn't about doing all the talking all the time. It's not about being the one to, to pray all the time or do all the talking, but it's staying quiet so that God can speak. Now, for those of you who are intercessors, you who are prayer warriors out here, you might be asking, but pastor, if I'm quiet, then I'm not interceding for others. 
Isn't that more important than silence? Let me tell you that silence will actually change the way you intercede and speak to God because you position your heart to want what God wants. You take some time before you pray to just be quiet and and you show up and you say, God, I'm listening. What do you want to speak to me? What do you want to say to me? Show me what your will is and how you want me to pray for people and position my heart to want what you want. In silence and solitude, we surrender our will to God's will. The second thing that happens is that we create a history with God. What do I mean by that? John 10, 27 says, my sheep, Jesus said this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. See, Jesus says, my sheep have a history with me. They hear my voice and they know me because they know what I sound like. They know the voice of their shepherd. My sheep have a history with me. They have a relationship with me. When you spend time in the Eremos, you are sowing into a relationship with God and creating a history with him. Did you know that none of the time that you spend in the quiet place will ever go to waste? You're making a relational deposit every time. Sometimes God will speak to you in the quiet place and sometimes you won't hear anything. You'll just sit in silence, but it never goes to waste. Oftentimes I'll spend five or ten minutes and I won't hear a word and I'll go, well, what's the point? I'm just wasting my day away in quiet and I'm not listening to anything. No, no, that's not true. You are sowing into a relationship with God and you're creating a history. You're saying, God, even if you speak to me or not, if I don't hear anything today or not, I just want you to know that I want to be in your presence. I'm here for you. I'm not here for what you can give me. I'm here for your presence. I'm here to be with you, God. Oftentimes our relationship with God, it looks like constant withdrawals. We ask for things and we hope that he fixes what is wrong. And the problem is, is that if you don't have a history with God, you don't have a relationship with God, you often come to God in your most dire moments, right? And you don't have any faith because you feel distant. You haven't spoken to him in such a long time. And here you are asking for something and you're thinking to yourself, man, I just feel so bad because God, now I'm, I'm here with you because I need something. We don't have the confidence to ask for help because we sense that we're trying to use God. We haven't developed a history or a relationship with God. But time spent in silence and solitude with a desire to be in his presence creates deposits into the relationships and gives us the confidence or the faith that we need to ask God for help in our most dire moments. It gives you faith and confidence when you spend time with God, when you develop a history with him. If you make history with God, he'll make history with you. David took time to create a history with God in the quiet place. He worshipped God and loved his presence. And as a result, God made history with David by killing Goliath. Have a relationship with God that nobody else knows about. We all should have a relationship with God that nobody sees, that nobody knows about, because it's in the secret place. We love to upload every moment of our lives to social media, don't we? We love to let people know. You know, some of us might say, what's the value in something if nobody else knows about it? What's the value in doing devotions if nobody else knew that I did it? (laughs) Does devotional time even count? How will anybody else know that I spent time with God? God knows. God sees. The quiet place is behind closed doors and is secret. 
And only God and you meet there. Nobody else sees it. It's just a, it's a relationship that you and God have. You're creating a history with him. You're getting to know him. You're getting to know his desires, the way he thinks, the way he works. And you, you just want to familiar. Did you know that that's the reason that Jesus died for you? So that you could know God. You could have a relationship. Not just like a relate. It's not a religion. It's a relationship. No, like an intimate. I know God and he knows me so well. We have a history. We should all have a quiet place, a history with God, something that nobody else knows about. I love uh, what Pastor Bill Johnson said. He's a pastor in Redding, California. He said this quote. He said, I want to be known by heaven, and I want to be known by hell, and I could care less if I'm known on the earth. When you're in the secret place, you're seen by heaven, and you're seen by hell. You are being, hell fears you in that place, I could care less if I'm known on the earth. I want to be in the secret place. I want to be in my time with God. Here's the third thing that happens when we are in silence and solitude. Is that we allow God to deeply transform us. Deeply transform us. Psalms 139, 23 through 24. Probably one of my most favorite verses. One of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. David says this. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David says, search my heart. Transform me. See if there's anything that doesn't belong. And and in the secret place, David would pray this prayer. See, David was a shepherd who cared for sheep alone in a field. He worshiped God during those times with his harp and he developed a secret history with God that nobody saw. He saw the strength and the faithfulness of God when he wrestled a lion and a bear in the Eremos. And it was his history with God that gave him faith in the public place when he fought Goliath. In fact, he mentioned it. When he came to Goliath, he said, you come at me with sword and spear. I come at you in the name of the Father. The the God who, who delivered the lion and the bear to me will deliver you into my hands today. How do you think David had that faith to, to say that? He had a history with God. He wrestled, he wrestled a lion and a bear when nobody was watching that gave him the faith and the courage and the strength to, to take on Goliath in the public place. The quiet place is where we all need to wrestle lions and bears. We need that, that space for God to deeply transform us. We all have lions and bears that we need to wrestle. Things that, that, that we do when nobody is watching. It might be it might be an addiction. It might be unforgiveness. Maybe it's even deeper than that, though. Maybe it's a, a craving for validation or attention from others. Maybe it's a shopping addiction. Or there's deep pain caused by something that someone said to you. We need God to, to transform us in the quiet place. And we wrestle those lions and, the, and bears in the quiet place. Otherwise, we live our lives with these wounds we live our lives with these things inside of us, and sometimes we don't even know that, we're, that they're there. They just escape us, and we, 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 we treat others poorly because we have these wounds. How many of you know that hurt people hurt people? And, and we hurt people, and we lash out because we are wounded. We've been hurt. And when you're in the secret place, and you're in the quiet place, you, you, you say, God, transform me. Search my heart. Tell me what's wrong. 
Help me wrestle these lions and bears. Let's get them out of here. And the last thing is this. We open ourselves to hear God speak. Now, as a general rule, the more we talk, the more we sin. That's reality. Proverbs confirms it. Proverbs 10, 19. It says, too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Solomon. That word of wisdom. That's the New Living Translation. Keep your mouth shut. See, imagine having a relationship with someone and all they do is speak. Just words, words, words. Talk, talk, talk. Request, request, request. That's a one-way relationship, isn't it? Practicing silence allows us to enter into a two-way relationship that allows us to abide in God and listen to God. See, I've got a few really close friends that when we're in the car together, we don't need to say anything. We don't need to say anything. We're, how, how many of you know that, um, that in order to, to sit in silence with somebody, you have to know that person really good? When you don't know a person very well, you feel the need to like fill the silence. So how was your day? Well, the weather's been crazy, hasn't it? Did you see the last Seahawks game? And you just try to fill it with small talk. But when you know somebody really well, you're comfortable to just sit and wait and listen. Driving in the car, and you know, I'd be in the car with one of my best friends or my wife, and we know each other so well that we're comfortable, we're fine just sitting with each other, just being quiet. In silence, you open yourselves to just be quiet and hear God speak. God wants to do something, I think, in us in the, in the next 21 days as we begin this starving uh, fast. Today is day one uh, of, of our starving book, and so. Uh, Here's, we, we have about 50 books in the lobby. I encourage every person in this room, if God has placed it on your heart to pursue him for these next 21 days, this is a prayer and fasting book. So you'll be challenged. I think on day three, we, we lay down junk food and lay down sugar. Uh, a day 11 is a, is a Daniel fast. There's a fast, there's a, there's a portion in here where we fast from digital stuff and social media. And so if God has put it on your heart for the next 21 days, to pursue him and spend time with his presence. I would encourage you, go pick up one of these books. They're $15, but here's the thing. If you truly cannot afford the book, just grab one. We want everybody in our church to participate. So if you truly cannot afford uh, this book, we, I, just, I want you to be blessed by our church. I want you to participate, but the caveat is, is you have to do it. All right? If you pick up a book, you have to do it. I want everybody, I encourage everyone to pursue Jesus for these next 21 days. And these next 21 days, as you, before you even open this up and begin your devotional, spend five minutes in quiet. Just five minutes. What I like to do, I shared this last week, but just picture Jesus somewhere. Picture Jesus in one of your favorite places or picture yourself driving in the car with him. Just imagine Jesus being with you. Maybe if you're on a couch, picture Jesus sitting on the couch next to you and wait to see if he says something. Sometimes he won't say anything, but at the end of it, you'll be able to say, I'm glad I got to hang out with you. I'm glad I got to spend time with you. Let's do this again tomorrow. Spend five or ten minutes every morning in complete silence just waiting on God to speak. And if you feel your mind getting distracted, and wandering to different things, the things you've got to do, 
have a notepad with you and quickly just write down that thing that, that you need to do and put it away and just hop back in the zone. Maybe, maybe come back to focus by saying, Jesus, I'm here. If you find yourself getting distracted, just say, Jesus, I'm listening. Father, I'm listening to put your mind back in focus. We can do this, church. We, we can make this practice of Jesus something that we model in our own lives because it will, it will, I promise you, it will bring deep transformation to your heart if you bring this practice into your life. Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to be in your presence. And thank you, God, for showing us a way, a better way to do life, a a better way to live. It feels like everything has been amplified. Everything has been, all the noise levels have just been turned up. Our news outlets are going crazy. Social media is going crazy. It just seems like everything is pulling at our attention. Those of us with children find it hard to, to balance that quiet time with you and, and taking care of our kids. And Jesus, we spend this time, we dedicate, dedicate these next 21 days to you. And Lord, I pray that you would develop this habit in all of our hearts. Transform us. Jesus, speak to us now. Let us hear your voice. Pursue the hearts in this room, God, that need to be pursued. We love you so much. In your name we pray. And the church said, Amen. 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 Love you, church. We have grow class starting in a couple minutes in the cafe. And if you'd like to attend that with us, I'd love to see you there. Um, Yeah, we'll see you next week.